Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, if you are one of the Democrats running for president, today was a pretty good day for you. But it was a bad day for just about everybody else, I guess, other than gold investors, of which I clearly am. But I'm also an American, and I hate to see. Uh, bad things happening to my country, even though I know bad things are going to happen. It's very unfortunate. I would just rather be among those who profit from these events than suffer additional uh, monetary losses in, a, in, a, in addition to the losses that you, you endure as an American citizen and uh, the freedom or liberties that you may lose as a result of the chaos that will ensue. Uh, but today, I think President Trump really kind of lost it you know, on Twitter, real time. I mean, maybe what we need or what Trump needs is somebody to be his official, uh, you know, Twitter filter. You know, maybe there should be a policy where when Trump wants to tweet, there's like a one hour or two hour cooling off period where, you know, you get the tweets get reviewed, maybe edited, maybe someone gets to, you know, talk a little sense into him before he tweets. But today's tweet storm probably really indicates that uh, the the White House, I think, is in disarray. I think the the president realizes that the air is coming out of this big, fat, ugly bubble, that he's not going to get out of Dodge. He's trying to pretend that the economy is still in great shape. Yet now you're you're hearing rumors of, you know, we need a payroll tax cut. You know, we need stimulus for the economy. I mean, why would you stimulate an economy that's doing great? If we have the greatest economy in the history of America, why does it need even more fiscal stimulus? After all, we already have the most fiscal stimulus ever. We have the largest budget deficits in history. And in fact, the Congressional Budget Office this week came out and revised up again their estimates for the deficits. And of course, those revisions don't even tell the whole story because number one, they don't even count all of the borrowing that goes to finance off-budget spending, which is enormous. And then look at their ridiculous assumptions. They assume no recession over the next 10 years. They also assume that interest rates stay this low for the next 10 years. I mean, these are asinine assumptions to make, yet even with these asinine assumptions, the deficits are over a trillion dollars a year as far as the eye can see. But a more realistic assessment and including the off-budget items, you're talking about $2 trillion deficits. But if Donald Trump is not reelected, which every day it becomes less and less likely that he will be, then throw these estimates out the window. 
Because if you start factoring in this laundry list of socialist programs that the Democrats want to enact, well, then again, you know, we're talking three trillion, four trillion. Who knows how big these deficits are going to be? Now, the day started off. Uh, a lot more quiet. I mean, I was looking for some volatility because Jerome Powell uh, was speaking this morning at Jackson Hole, Wyoming, at this annual uh, symposium uh, that they have there. And, uh, you know, the networks have been covering that. There's a lot of other Fed officials who have been interviewed uh, yesterday, today from Jackson Hole. And in fact, the text of Powell's speech was released Uh, before he gave the speech. Of course, these guys are very scripted, right? They never want to just talk off the cuff, right? Like if if it were me, if I were going to Jackson Hole, I wouldn't prepare any notes. I would just go up there and talk. Uh, Well, these Fed officials don't do that, right? It's very carefully scripted. And so they released the speech before he gave it. So pretty much the markets got to digest everything that he said. And he was very upbeat on the economy. And he basically, you know, we don't even think we need any more rate cuts. I was surprised the stock market didn't actually sell off on that because the stock market needs needs rate cuts. I mean, it, they're they're it's they're drug addicts. They need drugs. Uh, but, you know, I guess the market, you know, shrugged it off for whatever reason and managed uh, to be up a little bit. It was it wasn't up a lot, maybe 50, 60 points. Uh, And then we got the news from China that they were imposing new tariffs on uh, $75 billion worth of imports from America. And the tariffs, I think, are going to range from 5% to 25%, depending on the type of good that is going to be subject to the tariffs. Now, even before uh, this announcement came out, there was a news story that was leaked by the press there that China was going to retaliate and that Americans were going to feel the pain, right? There were some uh, words to that effect. So the market should have known that this was coming. We may have gone down two or 300. I forget the initial move. We may have had a bigger uh, fall than that. But where the fireworks really started, and of course the Dow at one point today was down about 750 points right near the close, uh, but we managed to pair the losses a little bit in the final 15 minutes or so, and we only closed down 623 points, which is 2.37%. Pretty big move. Uh, the NASDAQ was down 239 points. That's 3%. The uh, Russell 2000 down 3%. We're now down 16%. Remember I said the Russell 2000 was going to be the first index officially back in bear market territory. We may be there next week. There's a good chance of that. But I think the weakest index today, that prize goes to the transports. Dow transports down 333 points, 3.31%. The only real winners today, the gold stocks, the GDX up 4%. The juniors outperforming the seniors today, which I think is a good sign for the sector, up 5.42%. Gold itself closed uh, at a new closing high. In fact, GLD, which is the the exchange-traded fund, hit a new six-year high today, closed at the, the weekly close, also in the daily close on the high. And more importantly, the spot market closed up $29.10, 1526.60. We're now above... 1525, which has been an important uh, number for Harry Dent, who's been one of the big bears on gold. I mean, Harry and I, you know, are both bearish on the U.S. economy, but we both came to opposite conclusions with respect to gold. Uh, Harry expected the price of gold to plunge uh, while I expected it to surge. But Harry always said that, well, if we close above 1525, then I'll have to reverse my position and be bullish. And so now it's 1526.60. So I'd like to welcome Harry to the bullish camp. It's nice to have him on the right side of the gold trade. I think a lot more people are going to uh, uh, move into gold. Eventually, even the crypto people are going to get tired of uh, losing uh, money in cryptocurrencies. I mean, and and they're even going to start moving into gold, but it's going to take those people quite a while longer before, before they come on board. But again, the real um, damage to the markets started with Trump's tweets in response to these these tariffs. Now, first of all, you know, I said this on my podcast, and I don't even remember anybody in the mainstream media bringing this point up. But when Trump announced whatever that was a week or two ago, delaying the tariffs, 
that were going to start, I think, on the 1st of September. And he said that he didn't want to hurt Christmas, right? So he wanted to delay the tariffs because of the Christmas shopping season. See, that was an admission by Trump that the tariffs harmed American consumers. Because if they didn't harm American consumers, then why would he want to delay them to help Christmas? And he actually said that delaying these tariffs was going to be a good thing. Well, if it's a good thing, that means that Americans, contrary to what he's been saying, are actually paying the tariffs. Because if Americans weren't paying the tariffs, then what's the big deal? Right. If the tariffs were a Christmas present from the Chinese, why return it? Right. I mean, have an even happier Christmas. Let's have a great Christmas and get all this tariff money from the Chinese. But Trump decided, based on probably advice from other people, hey, I better call these things off because I don't want a really weak Christmas season. You know, the economy is already headed into recession. This could, you know, be the, the thing that really you know pushes it over the edge. So. I said when Trump did this, that was a sign of weakness. It was really like a surrender and that the Chinese were going to sense the position that Trump was now in because they basically called this bluff. He was saying, I'm going to impose all these tariffs and the Chinese did nothing. And then Trump backed down by delaying the implication of the tariffs. So he really seemed to me like, you know, he was now neutered with respect to these threats. So I think that emboldened the Chinese. So now the Chinese came out and said, all right, we're going to impose these new tariffs. What are you going to do, Trump? I mean, how is Trump going to put the tariffs back on when he just delayed him? Well, anyway, so the, the news comes out that these tariffs are on and then Trump just goes crazy, crazy on Twitter. And the markets really start reacting to this barrage of tweets where the, the president, like, is he's just irate and he's just typing and typing into Twitter, you know, because now he's really pissed. And, you know, the, the funny thing about it, I was watching Larry Kudlow on Fox Business just yesterday talking about how well the trade negotiations were going. Oh, we just got off the phone with China. Things are going really well. I mean, obviously, that was just a lie. They weren't going well at all. They completely broken down. I mean, the trade war has never been this hot, right? It is continuously escalating. So there had been nothing that had been negotiated. I mean, so I don't know if Cudlow was just, it was just wistful thinking or if he was, he was just lying about that. But so Trump is irate and he starts tweeting like, who needs the Chinese anyway? We'd be better off without the Chinese. Like, yeah, who needs all those cheap consumer goods, right? We don't need all that stuff, right? America, we have too much stuff anyway. We don't need any more stuff. And oh, we don't have to borrow all this money from the Chinese. We'll just raise taxes on Americans or Americans will be happy to stop shopping and spend money and, and use that money to buy treasuries instead, right? The Chinese are supplying us with all this stuff that we don't produce and they're lending us all this money that we don't save. The Chinese are making our lives in the here and now much better. Yes, I agree that in the long run, they're just giving us rope that we're hanging ourselves with. But in the meantime, we've fashioned the rope into a hammock and we're, and we're, we're you know, lounging around in it. Trump doesn't really get this. So he's making all these tweets. And now he's basically, one of his tweets was, um, as president, I order all American companies to look for alternatives. Stop doing business in China. Bring you know your workers home or bring your production back to the U.S. I order everybody out of China. I mean, he's just going crazy. Now, there are people who are thinking, well, obviously he can't do that. Well, he probably can, right? He can put sanctions, just like he sanctions people from doing business with North Korea or with Iran. He can say China is an enemy. If you look at these tweets, he's saying China is you know, stealing all this money, been ripping up off for years. This is like a national security thing. I'm going to fight back. You know, there was one interview where Donald Trump was out there and he referred to himself as the chosen one looking up to the heavens with his arms stretched out, saying that he's the chosen one to fight this battle, right? That all these presidents before him uh, have ignored this and he's the chosen one, but not really chosen by the voters because he didn't, he looked up into the heavens like he's been chosen by God to take on this cause like he's some kind of Moses right and he he's, he's he's accepting his orders from you know from a burning bush on the top of Mount Sinai so I don't know I mean he's, he seems like he's lost it to me but anyway he's putting out all these tweets uh, and and the market is you know what I mean the market is just tanking and, and probably the funniest of the tweets that he put out Trump acknowledged the weakness in the Dow when it was down 573 points right? And he put out a tweet that said that um, the Dow is down 573 points, perhaps on the news that Representative Seth Moulton, 
whoever that may be, has dropped out of the 2020 presidential race. I mean, I mean, I mean, is this a joke or is this is he serious? I mean, some guy, he doesn't even know who he is. And he thinks that's why the Dow is down 573 points. Obviously, the Dow is down because he escalated the trade war. That's why the Dow is down. But I mean, he doesn't want to admit that. I don't know. I mean, who who knows what uh, what he meant by this tweet, if he was serious, if he was joking. But to me, you know, the most interesting tweets uh, related to the Fed, because there were plenty of tweets about the Fed. I mean, Trump is mad at the Chinese and he's mad at the Fed. In fact, he's probably even more mad uh, at the Fed. In fact, one of his tweets, he asked a question. He posed a question. Who is our bigger enemy? Xi in China or Powell at the Fed, right? Who is America's biggest enemy? Because he looks at both the Fed and the Chinese as the enemy that he is fighting, right? He's fighting this war, and instead of the Fed being his ally, the Fed is his enemy, right? Well, Trump is actually right about the Fed being an enemy. And in fact, the Fed is a much bigger enemy than China. China is not our enemy at all, right? Uh, but the Fed has been our enemy, but not for the reasons that Trump thinks. The Fed has been an enemy of the United States because it has cooperated, it has conspired with the U.S. government to undermine the U.S. economy because of the way the Fed has worked with Congress and presidents in the past. They have blown asset bubble after asset bubble. They have pursued a reckless monetary policy designed solely to delay the day of reckoning for political purposes. Right? They have allowed the U.S. economy to get worse. The huge trade deficit that we have that concern Trump and that should concern him are the result of monetary policies that the Fed has pursued that have kept interest rates artificially low, which have meant that Americans have not saved enough. And so we haven't had the capital investment. And so we've relied on the savings of the rest of the world. America is drowning in debt because of the Fed. And it's not just American people, the American government, because the Federal Reserve's cooperation with the government in keeping interest rates artificially low, and in particular, doing quantitative easing, directly enabled massive increases in the government debt. If the Fed had done its job and actually served the American people instead of been the enemy of the American people and served the government instead of the people, had the Fed done its job and not lowered interest rates, then the government would not have been able to run these massive deficits. The government would have been forced to cut spending. But the Federal Reserve enabled the deficits and the spending to continue by giving our politicians an easy way out, by basically taking away the pain of doing the wrong thing. Trump has been talking about it, and a lot of other people have been talking about how the Federal Reserve should be helping us, right? We're having this trade war, and the trade war and the tariffs are, are hurting the economy, and so the Fed should come to our aid uh, by offsetting that, right? In fact, even when the Chinese announced tariffs, I think Trump came out and said, okay, Fed, now it's your turn. A tweet like, okay, the Fed should now act and cut rates or do QE as, as firing our big guns in this war as if two wrongs make a right. It's not up to the Fed to try to insulate the economy from the bad decisions that our leaders are making, right? If the government wants to run big deficits, then the Fed needs to let interest rates go up so that the public understands the cost of those big deficits and therefore they'll be against them. If people don't think there's a cost, if they really believe there's a free lunch, we can borrow as much money as we want, we can print as much money as we want, and there's no consequences, then you know, how do you put a stop to it? But if the Fed allows people to feel the negative consequences of the big deficits, then there'll be some political pressure on politicians to do something about it. But as long as the Fed lets them off the hook, then there is no pressure to do anything about it. The same thing with trade. If we are making stupid decisions and imposing tariffs and inciting a trade war, it's not up to the Fed to try to minimize the, the impact of those bad decisions. Let those bad decisions sink in so that the voters will then put pressure on politicians to reverse the policy. But of course, it's not going to help, right? If the Fed does exactly what Trump wants, and of course, eventually they will do exactly what Trump wants. They are going to cut interest rates back to zero. They are going to do quantitative easing, but it isn't going to help the economy. It is going to hurt the economy, right? We are going to see more downward pressure uh, on the dollar, or finally, and we're going to see upward pressure on consumer prices. In fact, look at Mark Carney today. Mark Carney, governor of the Bank of England, 
today in a speech said that the world needs to replace the dollar as the reserve currency. This is big. This is the head of the Bank of England. Right now, what, when, when he was thinking about what should replace the dollar, he said maybe some type of Libra-esque you know, currency, right? A cryptocurrency or some type of uh, instrument that's backed by a basket of other currencies. I mean, that's not going to work. I mean, if you want to get rid of the dollar as the reserve currency, just have the, the integrity to say, go back to a gold standard. That's what works. If you don't want the dollar for all the obvious reasons, then the euro isn't good, the yen isn't good, the renminbi isn't good, some basket of those currencies isn't going to work. There's only one thing that will work, and that's gold. But of course, the politicians are resisting that till the end because not only will gold work, but it will impose discipline on governments, which is the last thing politicians want, but it is going to be the best thing for the global economy. But those cries to replace the dollar as the world's reserve currency will grow louder and louder once we go back to zero and go back to quantitative easing. You know, but of course, if you listen to what the, uh, the Fed guys had to say today at Jackson Hole, including Jerome Powell, there are no problems. There's nothing to worry about, right? The economy is in great shape. In fact, the only thing that people thought was a problem, any of these Fed guys, was low inflation, right? The only problem we have is low inflation. I mean, low inflation is not a problem. I mean, I mean, low inflation is good. I mean, even lower would be better. But I mean, how can the United States consider low inflation a problem? Apart from the fact that low inflation is a benefit to consumers, right? Because it helps keep their cost of living down. In fact, no inflation would be even better and falling prices would be better to prices that rose slightly. But to say the problem is that prices aren't rising fast enough is crazy when you are the world's biggest debtor, right? America, the United States owes more money. We have 22 and a half trillion in debt, right? The, the, the funded debt. And that's just the federal government, not the state governments, the local governments, mortgages, all, all the money that Americans owe, right? And the reason that interest rates are so low, other than the Fed intervention, is because people are convinced that there's no inflation to worry about, that inflation is going to stay low forever. And so they're not demanding a higher rate of interest to compensate for a higher level of inflation. But if the Fed actually solved the low inflation problem with higher inflation and inflation expectations went up, then interest rates would go way up, especially longer term rates. And that would adversely impact the U.S. economy. I mean, because the U.S. taxpayer is on the hook, what is keeping the cost of servicing this $22.5 trillion national debt so low is the low interest rates. If interest rates went up because there was a higher inflation premium built into the yield curve, right? Well, I mean, the economy would implode. I mean, so low inflation is exactly what they need. The last thing they need is higher inflation. By the way, with the yield curve, you know, I spoke on my last podcast. So I mentioned that one day where the yield curve inverted and we had that 800 point drop in the Dow when the twos and the tens inverted. That inversion was intraday. Today, we actually closed inverted. For the first time, the yield on the two year uh, treasury is higher than the yield on the 10-year treasury. So again, another huge inf you know, a recession sign that everybody at the Fed seems to be ignoring, right? And there's a lot of other news that came out this week that screams, screams recession that everybody's ignoring. In fact, I think it was yesterday or the day before, the Bureau of Labor Statistics came out and they announced their preliminary revisions uh, to the non-farm payroll numbers, right? Every month we get these jobs numbers and generally they're expecting anywhere from, I don't know, 180 to 200,000 jobs a month. And either we beat it by a little bit or we miss it by a little bit. And if we, if we beat it, there's a big move in the market. If we miss, there's a big move because a lot of people are trading off these numbers, right? So the government basically says, okay, we're going to revise now uh, the year ending March, 2019, right? So for a full year, 12 months, ending with March 2019, we now are going to go back and revise those estimates. And basically, they're taking down the job creation by 501,000 jobs. So 501,000 fewer jobs were created during that 12-month period than was initially reported by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. I mean, that is a huge number. In fact, I read this is like the biggest number ever when it comes to revisions like that. It basically amounts to 41,000 
600 jobs every month, which means every one of those jobs numbers that everyone on Wall Street was waiting, you know, anticipating with bated breath, they were all wrong. 41,600, by far that is bigger than the margin of pretty much every beat or every miss. So basically, if you subtracted 41,600 from each monthly jobs report, that means the, the numbers that missed, missed even bigger, right? The weak reports were much weaker than was reported. But the strong reports were a lot less strong. In fact, a lot of the, the beats we now know were misses, right? Now, obviously, they're not going to go back and, you know, and, and, and reverse all the trades because a lot of money was made and lost based on betting on numbers where the outcome wasn't real, right? It's, it's like at a racetrack, you know, they announced one winner and then it turns out that that horse didn't win. It was a different horse, right? But, you know, in this case, you know, the people who, who bet wrong actually won, right? They're not, you know, they're not going to go back and give the people who bet, you know, based on, you know, currencies or, or bonds that it would be a weak jobs report. And it actually was a weak jobs report, but the government erroneously reported it as a strong number. And then the guy who actually bet wrong won. But of course, now the markets don't even care. The markets did not even react to the fact that all these jobs reports were wrong because no one really cares about the revisions because nobody is betting on the revisions. There's a lot of trades that are being made based on that monthly report on the first Friday of every month. So no one now cares that all the numbers were completely bogus. But the point is, I say this all the time, whenever the markets are celebrating one of these numbers, I keep saying, who cares? The number may not be real. Expect, you know, when you look at the birth death assumptions, it's all it's all just made up anyway. Right. And, but the thing for Trump, Trump's job creation, despite all of his tweets and talk and boasting about being the jobs president, even before this downward revision, the the pace of job growth under Trump is much slower than it was uh, under Obama during his second term, right? So now this makes it even worse. This makes it even slower. But then there were some more uh, numbers we got. I read an article about RV sales crashing. And I read this article, and I'm reading some of these guys in the RV business, and they're saying they've never seen it this week, right? That this is terrible. It's the worst it's ever been. The worst ever. I mean, even worse than it was during the Great Recession. And the most interesting thing about this collapse in RV sales and the weakest RV market ever is if you recall, the reason that Q2 GDP beat estimates was because of a surge in consumer spending, much higher than they thought. And the biggest factor, the biggest category that drove the big jump in consumer spending was RV sales. So according to the government, RV sales are booming. According to the RV dealers, they're crashing and it's never been this bad. Now, I don't know. Who do you believe? The government statisticians or the guys that are actually selling RVs or rather not selling RVs? But the worst economic numbers came out yesterday. We got the PMI, the flash PMI numbers, both for manufacturing and for the service sector. Right. So the manufacturing number for July had come out at 51.6, which is pretty low, right, because you know, 50 is 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 basically neutral. Anything above 50, you're growing. Anything below 50, you're contracting. And so the the composite was at 51.6. They were expecting it to come up to 51.9, a slight improvement. Instead, it fell all the way down to 50.9. Very weak number. But if you break it down, right, because the composite is a they take manufacturing and services and they put them together. But if you break it down to those two components, manufacturing was at 50, right? Just right, flat, neutral last month. And they expected August to increase to 50.2. Instead, we notched down to 49.9. That is significant because not only is it in contraction mode, it is the weakest in 10 years. You have to go back to 2009 to find a manufacturing PMI that week. We were back in recession or just, you know, at the end of the recession. Yet Trump is talking about how this is the greatest economy ever, yet the manufacturing PMI is the lowest in 10 years. Now, look at the service number. The service PMI in the month of July was 52.2. They were expecting a slight improvement to 52.3. Instead, we went down to 50.9. Barely above 50, 50.9. This is the lowest level that the service PMI has been in three years. Three years ago, Obama was still president. So if we have the greatest economy ever, 
why do we have the same type of numbers that we had under Obama? And in fact, three years ago, when Obama was president, the economy was headed into recession. The only reason we didn't go into recession was because Hillary Clinton lost and Donald Trump won. And that changed the dynamic. Right? All of a sudden, you had all this optimism out there that the economy was going to get better. You had nothing but despair. Right? And when people realized, oh, wow, four more years of this, if Hillary had won, the recession would have happened. And the Fed, of course, never would have done more than one rate hike. We would have been back at zero a long time ago. We would have been doing QE already. Gold would already be much higher. The dollar would already be much lower. But we got a reprieve for a few years because Trump came in. But unfortunately, Trump did not deliver any of the substantive economic improvements that people were hoping for. All he did was enable more air to go into the bubble. So now it's popping a few years later. That's all. But it's a bigger, fatter, uglier bubble that's popping. And unfortunately, we didn't get Hillary Clinton but we're going to get somebody much worse. We just had four years right between that. But now we're going to get maybe a woman. Maybe it'll, it'll be Elizabeth Warren, who will probably be much worse than Hillary Clinton would have been. But who knows? It could be Bernie Sanders or whoever. Right. But it's whoever's wins is going to be worse for the economy than Hillary Clinton would have been. But the guys at uh, the Fed are ignoring all this. Right. They're, they're, they're seeing the same data that we're seeing, yet they're not concerned at all. Right. The only thing they're concerned about is that the cost of living is not rising fast enough. They don't worry about any of this stuff that is screaming recession. And again, to me, the Fed is acting very similar to the way they acted leading up to the 2008 financial crisis. You know, when they were dismissing all the problems in the mortgage market, when they were dismissing subprime and saying it was contained. I mean, it was obvious it wasn't contained. I mean, I didn't have anywhere near the economic data at my disposal that the Fed had. Yet I can tell from a mile away or miles away how bad it was. I mean, they clearly had to know. But again, they can't tell anybody, right? They have to pretend that's their job just to deny, deny, deny and, and put a smiley face on everything and just hope that they can will us, uh, you know, away from recession or delay the recession uh, by just, you know, talking about how good the economy and, and, and in denial. And in fact, Trump was actually upset because after Powell spoke, it's like Trump was expecting Powell to announce some kind of major thing. Right. At this at Jackson Hole, which is just a routine speech that they give, you know, on the economy. And Trump was upset that Powell didn't do something right, that he didn't announce something uh, to help. And now I think Trump tweeted about the fact that he's ready to do something because he said we have a very strong dollar, but we have a very weak Fed. And he said, I'm going to work with that. I'm going to do something about that. The implication is that the dollar is really strong. We can afford to weaken it. Right. Which means that uh, the markets are in a way looking for some type of intervention, deliberate intervention to weaken the dollar against other currencies. And, you know, another one of the dichotomies, Trump will say he's in favor of a strong dollar. He just wants he doesn't like it when other countries weaken their currency. Well, I mean, so you can't say that I want a strong dollar, but I also want other currencies not to be weak. Right. If, because if, if you want foreign currencies to be stronger, well, then you want the dollar to be weaker. I mean, it's a distinction without a difference because when you're talking about foreign exchange rates, right, where you relate one currency to another currency, it doesn't matter whether you say the dollar is weak or the, the euro is strong or the euro is weak or the dollar is strong. It makes no difference. It's, it's the opposite side of the same seesaw. Now, if you're just talking about purchasing power, yes, all currencies can be weak. All currencies can be strong, right? Currencies can be gaining purchasing power and they can be losing purchasing power. And you can measure that versus gold. But if you're simply talking about the dollar versus the yuan or the dollar versus the euro, one can't go up without the other one going down. So, you know, either you want your currency to be strong or not. Trump tries to pretend he wants it both ways. He actually wants the dollar to be weak, even if he just says, no, I don't want the dollar to be weak. I want the yuan to be strong or I want the euro to be strong. It's the same thing. But people are now speculating that maybe there'll be some type of intervention to weaken the dollar because it's already so strong that we can afford to weaken it a little bit. But again, it's not going to weaken it a little bit. It's going to be like trying to get a little bit pregnant. It's, it's, it's going to get a lot weaker. I mean, once they turn the dynamic on the dollar, it's just going to fall. It's going to be like a like a like, you know, like a stone, you know, a snowball rolling down a hill. And it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger as it gains more and more momentum and picks up more snow. There's going to be no stopping it once uh, once the dollar really starts to fall. It, it's going to free fall. That's going to be the problem. And of course, that is going to exacerbate uh, 
the problems for the U.S. economy. It is not a panacea. Weakening the dollar is not going to do anything. In fact, if you go back to the Bush administration prior to the financial crisis, the dollar had been falling for years. The dollar hit an all-time record low in 2008, and we had the, our largest trade deficits ever in 2008, in that summer, just before the financial crisis. So our trade deficits were actually getting bigger as the dollar got weaker, which makes more sense than the opposite, because if the dollar goes down, our terms of trade are, are weakened. If the dollar loses value, we need more dollars to buy imports, right? So the cost of importing goes up and we earn fewer units of the foreign currencies from our exports. So when your currency goes down, your trade deficits actually go up, right? Now, if our currency collapsed enough, then eventually our trade deficits would go down because we couldn't afford to import anything. We'd be that broke. Uh, but right now, a weak dollar is just going to fuel even bigger trade deficits than the ones that we already have. And they're already record highs. You know, getting back to some of these uh, other Fed guys that spoke, one of the things that Bullard said today when it comes to the rate cuts was that, you know, he's again, he doesn't think that we need rate cuts because he thinks the economy is great. Despite all the statistics that I just went over, uh, he thinks the economy is great, but he's worried, OK, maybe some of the problems overseas will somehow slip in to the U.S. economy. So he's talking about, hey, let's cut rates as an insurance policy, right? Let's just take out an insurance policy just in case. Even though we don't think that the economy is in trouble, let's cut rates anyway, just to make sure, right? And then he said, because if we don't need it, if it turns out we didn't need the rate cuts, we can always take away the insurance policy. We can always raise rates back up, which is complete asinine. Because once you cut rates, you can't take them away because you're, you, the market depends on those rates. And of course, the, the bubble needs lower interest rates. The real economy needs higher interest rates. But the phony economy needs lower interest rates. And once the phony economy gets lower interest rates, right, once you give the drug addict more drugs, well, that, that's it. You can't take those extra drugs away, right? Maybe the addict was going into rehab, but now you blew up the whole process by, by giving the guy more drugs. And so it's easier said than done. Yeah, if we give the markets a cut, oh, let's just take it away, right? Then the markets will implode. The economy will implode. So this is all nonsense. Bullard basically is trying to cut rates while pretending that the economy is not in trouble, just like Trump wants to cut payroll taxes while pretending that the economy is not in trouble. Again, this is music to the ears of the Democrats, especially Elizabeth Warren, again, who is really out in front with her recession call. The economy is phony. We have too much debt. I mean, she's saying a lot of the right things about the problems in the economy. Of course, her solutions are completely wrong and will make it worse. And she doesn't understand why things are so bad. And she's trying to pretend that she knows how to stop this recession, right? Oh, hey, a recession is coming and I've got a plan to stop it. Yeah, her plan wouldn't work, but it doesn't matter because she's going to claim it would have worked because it's not going to be implemented. But Trump looks like a fool, right? You know, he's the captain of a ship and he's everything is fine, nothing to worry about. And he's up to his, you know, his, his neck in water as the ship is sinking, right? He's going to look like a complete fool uh, when it comes to this. In fact, I saw... Uh, a some a text of a speech uh, that Joe Biden made and perfect. And this is exactly what I said was going to happen. You go back to my podcast from the day Trump was elected. This is exactly what I said was going to happen. So um, Biden said that Trump inherited a great growing economy from Obama and blew it. Right. He squandered it. And then he came up with something that I didn't come up with, right? Because I knew I was saying he inherited a great economy and he blew it, right? And it was just like Bush. Bush, uh, uh, Bush inherited a great economy from Clinton and he blew it, right? That's what the narrative was. So Bush screwed up the Clinton economy and now it's going to be Trump screwed up the Obama economy. But what uh, Biden said I thought was a brilliant marketing pitch. He said that Donald Trump inherited a great economy and squandered it just like he squandered everything else he inherited, which I thought was a perfect, uh, you know, slogan or bumper sticker, or whatever, because that's, you know, Trump inherited a lot of money uh, from his father. He pretends that he didn't. And people can say, hey, you squandered that inheritance, right? Well, I don't, I don't you know, I don't think he squandered it. I, you know, I mean, obviously he, I, he, he turned, he inherited a lot of money and now he has even more money. Uh, but the Democrats like to spin that narrative. But I think it's going to work very well at the polls because, hey, you squandered this great economy just like you squandered everything you've ever inherited. This is the, Trump is going to have such a hard time. Again, the markets are so clueless about this. The markets are acting again like Trump can't lose, right? 
He can lose, and he probably will lose. And when the markets start to price that in, they're going much, much lower. Now, one of the tweets that particularly rattled the market was when Trump promised to retaliate against the Chinese. And he said he would announce those whatever those measures were later in the afternoon. So the markets had to deal with that because they didn't know uh, what Trump was going to announce. And again, remember, you know, Trump was in a in a bind, right, because he had then delayed tariffs claiming that he wanted to, uh, you know, he wanted to help Christmas. He didn't want to hurt the consumers into Christmas. And so he had delayed the tariff. So what could he possibly do? What 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 retaliation could he have uh, without, you know, now having to admit that Americans are going to have to pay the price? Well, anyway, after the close, right, the market closed, Trump came out with his response. And basically he tweeted that in response to the tariffs on 75 billion uh, of American imports, Trump was now going to uh, increase the tariffs on the that are the existing 25% tariffs on 250 billion in Chinese goods starting October 1st that those 25% tariffs would go up to 30% and the 10% tariffs on the remaining 300 billion in goods that are set to kick in on September 1st now they're going to go up to 15% instead of 10%. Now I'm a little confused by the tweet because those are the tariffs that he delayed, right? The 10% tariffs that were supposed to start on September 1st were going to be delayed. Now, does he mean that the delay is now off and they're going to begin on September 1st? Or are the September 1st tariffs still delayed, but now when they eventually are actually imposed, if they're ever imposed, those delayed tariffs are going to be 15% instead of 10%. I'm not really sure because... Trump wasn't that specific in his tweet. And I don't even know if Trump knows. But my guess would be if he thought the 10% tariffs would hurt the economy before Christmas and he delayed it, well, then I'm sure that this 15% tariff is also delayed, which means if you're threatening the Chinese with tariffs that you didn't even impose and you already delayed, I'm sure the Chinese aren't even worried about this extra 5% because they probably realize that the 10% tariffs are never going to be implemented. So the 15% is probably not going to happen either. So the only real thing that's happening is the 25% tariffs on the existing $250 billion of imports uh, will rise to 30% on October 1st, unless, of course, before October 1st, Donald Trump blinks again and, and delays those. So later in the day, I think after the market closed, uh, Steve Leesman on CNBC uh, interviewed a Clarida uh, from the Fed and specifically asked him uh, about Trump's statement that Powell was the enemy, right? You know, how do you feel when the president of the United States says that the Federal Reserve is the enemy, which, of course, they are, again, but not for the reasons that Trump thinks. But he wouldn't answer the question. I mean, he kind of, you know, obfuscated and, and went off on a tangent. And then Leesman asked it again, and, and, and he still kind of didn't want to answer it. Because, again, how do you answer that? I mean, what is he supposed to say? He should be upset. He should say, yeah, the president is wrong, right, because he's trying to act like they're doing the right thing. And Trump is saying not only are they incompetent, right, because he says they're incompetent, they don't know what they're doing, and they're our enemy. I mean, I've never heard a sitting president be that critical of the Federal Reserve, especially considering that Donald Trump criticized the Federal Reserve for doing what he's now criticizing them for not doing. Trump wants the Fed to be as reckless and irresponsible for him as it was for Obama, right? So if anybody thought that Trump was a statesman, that Trump cared about the U.S. economy, that he was actually different, that he actually wanted to drain the swamp. That should prove to you that that's not the case, that he is a politician, just like any other politician. He's a very good politician because with no experience, he got elected. And all he cares about is getting reelected, right? And he's going to say or do whatever he has to do to get reelected. So he didn't drain the swamp. He is the creature from the swamp. Right. He is living and thriving in a swamp that is bigger, deeper and murkier than ever. Now, I want to finish up uh, the podcast a little bit talking about just the real estate market and what's going to be happening there, you know, because we have these record low mortgage rates right now and it's not helping the housing market. I mean, it's helping the housing market to not collapse. 
but it is not causing a spike in, in sales, in, in, in prices, even though you have this massive support in the form of this reduction in, in mortgage rates, it is not helping people buy homes because they don't have the money. They're drowning in debt and home prices are too high. Home prices have to come down. The problem is when home prices come down, the banks are in a lot of trouble because these this real estate acts as collateral for a lot of loans. And when real estate prices go down, borrowers don't have an incentive to make their payments, right? Because they're, they're underwater. And what I want to talk about in particular is I was looking through Zillow Right, which, by the way, is another company that's in a lot of trouble. Uh, but I was looking on their website. I was looking at houses in uh, Western Connecticut, which is where I used to live before I moved to Puerto Rico. Now, I still have my house there, uh, and I, so I use it as a summer home. Uh, but I was looking at the houses in, in Weston. And if you go, you know, look at Weston, Connecticut. And I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of other towns that are like this. But if you go to Zillow and look at Weston, Connecticut, and you can look at the houses, and you can search them from the high price to the low price. And you'll see pages and pages and pages of houses that are for sale. A lot of them, you know, one and a half million uh, range, one and a half to two million or one and a quarter million. Beautiful houses, big houses, you know, 6,000, 9,000 square feet, nice size houses, really in good shape. Look at some of the pictures, right? These are either they're brand new houses or they've been remodeled. Uh, they've, they've been painted. They've got new roofs. They've got new kitchens, new bathrooms, all updated, right? And you look at these houses and you'll see the prices and you can look at the price history, price cut, price cut, price cut, price cut, houses on the market, one year, two years, three years, four years, five years, not selling houses that started out, you know, offered at 4 million, Right now at one and a half million. I mean, look, increments going down 300,000, 500,000, boom, 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 dropping, dropping, dropping. And you can go back and a lot of these houses, you know, you could see when they were bought, right? Their first, when they were first bought after they were built. And some of the houses were actually bought new in the late 1990s, 96, 97, 98, some of them in the early 2000s. But look at the price that was paid for these houses. A lot of the houses that are being offered today with no buyers for a million and a half, the owners paid two and a half, three million dollars for those houses 15 to 20 years ago. Think about that. Think about all the inflation, despite the fact that we want to pretend there's no inflation. Think about how much higher the cost of living is today than it was 20 years ago. Yet these houses are down by 30 to 50 percent from where they were. And of course, it's not like the houses, you know, just are like they were. Because, again, they have fixed them up. They have upgraded them and remodeled them. So if somebody spent three million dollars on a house 20 years ago and they spent half a million dollars improving it, I mean, they lost all that money. That money's gone because now they're, they're trying to sell the house for a million five and they can't even get that. I mean, nobody will buy these houses, right? The prices just keep on falling no matter how low they go. I mean, all these houses to me, I mean, I know what it costs to build a house. And most of these houses are selling for prices that if you got the land that they're on, you couldn't build the house for what they're selling for, assuming you got the land for free. Right. So but I think what's happening in, you know, in my town in Connecticut is happening in other towns. Right. It's not just Connecticut and it's going to spread. It's going to go throughout the entire country. I mean, look, look at California. I mean, some of these bubblicious uh, markets, they're just going to implode. Wait until mortgage rates move up. They're going to move up. The Fed is going to lose control of interest rates. Long-term rates are going to go up. Mortgage rates are going to go up during the next recession. They're going to lose control. The bond market's going to get hit. This yield curve inversion is a head fake. The big move in bonds is going to be down and interest rates up. That's what's going to compound the severity of this next recession. It's going to be an inflationary recession, and it's consumer prices that are going to go up and interest rates. So real estate is in a lot of trouble. Residential real estate, commercial real estate, the lenders are in a lot of trouble. This is actually a bigger uh, potential financial crisis than the one that we had in 2008. And again, remember, none of the experts saw that coming, right? I put that clip up there of uh, Larry Kudlow. Oh, nobody, pot, nobody, I don't know of anybody who is predicting the severity of the 2008 crisis. Yeah, he knew about me because I was on his show. But I not only predicted on his show, again, if you haven't seen my mortgage banker speech from 2006 on YouTube, go play that speech, right? The problems in the financials are bigger now 
the banks are, are actually more exposed, right? All those too big to fail banks, did they fail? No. Now they're even bigger than they were before when we should have let them fail. Well, they're going to fail all over again if rates move up. Remember, all of the stress tests, I've been talking about that on this podcast. Nobody talks about it. The only thing the Fed stress test was interest rates going down. They stress test the banks for a recession where inflation and interest rates go down. No bank has ever been stress tested for a spike in interest rates during a recession. Interest rates go up as the economy goes down. Unemployment goes up and interest rates goes up. None of the banks have been stress tested for that. And the reason is every one of the banks would fail that stress test, which is why they're not administering the test, because why administer a test that you know everyone's going to fail, right? But of course, they think that that's impossible. They think that a recession with rising interest rates is impossible. That's the hubris of the central banks, right? Now, obviously, how do they explain what happened uh, during the 1970s? How do they explain that stagflation, right? Well, maybe they think they're smarter than the Fed chairman were back then, right? They, they were dumb enough to let that to happen and that the guys run the Fed now, they're, they're so brilliant that somehow they're going to be able to make sure that we never have a combination of recession and rising interest rates again, that we never have stagflation again. Well, just when you think that you're never going to have something, that's when you get it, right? Everybody is fighting the last war. Everybody expects the next crisis to be the same as the last crisis. It's not going to be. It's going to be much worse. The Fed has no ability. You know, they keep talking about their toolkit, right? Like, oh, you know, we got to look at our toolkit, you know, because, you know, we're, we're down. Our interest rates are really low, so we can't cut rates the way we normally do. So we're looking for new tools. What tools? They can't fix this economy. All they can do is break it. They don't have any tools. What can they do? They can create inflation. That is all they could do. They could print money, right? That doesn't create any real wealth. That doesn't do anything. That just debases the money, right? And that's, you know, Trump is is demanding that the Fed do something. What can they do? They're, they're impotent, you can't grow an economy by printing money. I mean, if, if that worked, if just printing money worked, why isn't Zimbabwe the richest country in the world? Why didn't it work in Argentina? It doesn't work, right? All it does is, is, is for a while, it can create a false impression that it's working, just like any drug. You can start hallucinating and think things are happening, but it doesn't work. Their only tool is inflation. However they want to do it, whatever they want to call it, that's all they can do. They can expand the money supply. They can debase the currency, but that does not cause economic growth. That actually uh, undermines economic growth.